Hi, everyone. Today is Lisa Long's day on the podcast. Um, this is actually a long time coming. I thought I'd lost the audio for this because the microphones didn't work very well. And poor Lisa was a little bit sick when we recorded. So there was a few coughs. I've tried to cut the coughs out. Uh, so I hope you enjoy the podcast. She is an expert in all things tech uh, and the tech world. So startups. She has some really interesting things to say around Kickstarter projects, things like that. I really hope you'll enjoy it. If you're interested at all in the startup world, then I'm sure you'll enjoy it. All right, with no further ado, I will pass you over to me with Lisa. <laughs> Hi, you're listening to Wimbledon, hosted by me, Nick Ray. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm not going to say how excited I am. I have a very good friend of mine uh, from INSEAD Business School, who I went to INSEAD Business School with, uh, and she is an incredible woman, uh, Lisa Long. I am going to pass over to Lisa to introduce herself, but I, what I want to do is get a bit about Li uh, Lisa's background uh, and also, um, well, I'm going to talk to you, Lisa, because you're here with me in the room. So this is why I wanted to do podcasts. I've got all this set up crazy amounts of wires on the table i'm going to try and edit them out of the podcast to see to, to make sure that people can't see them but for, unfortunately lisa can see the sorry state of affairs on the table so um <laughs> lisa i'm going to throw over to you to introduce yourself I, I, if you can give me a bit about your background kind of where you're from how you got to be where you are now in oslo in norway and and a bit about your life path along the way well, thanks very much, Nick, for actually having on my podcast. Um, I was really excited a few years ago when you moved to Norway. Um, I thought it would be fun, but of course, then COVID hit strangely, and then we haven't been able to see each other as much as I would have liked. But uh, thanks for inviting me on, and this is a great project, I think, that you're doing, and you've interviewed some really interesting people, so I'm very pleased to be among this group. Yeah. Well. So, um, a little background on me. So, my name is Lisa Long. I am a Canadian-American Brit, and I moved to Norway about seven years ago. So my path has been a little uh, tortuous. Um, I started off as a chemical engineer. I studied in upstate New York and then went out to Silicon Valley where I had to learn how to program. Um, <clears throat> I was there for a few years and then got into a really, really bad car accident. And so that was one of the kind of defining moments of my life is um, thanks to the American healthcare system, I was going to go bankrupt. So I ended up getting a job to transfer me to Europe where there is fabulous socialized healthcare, which then allows you to actually not go bankrupt just because you've been in a car accident. Um, so I then actually came to INSEAD as well, um, and we had a fabulous road trip in the fall of my time at INSEAD, and yeah. I'm actually not sure you know how important that road trip was for me, because I hated INSEAD at that point. Oh. I was having a terrible time, um, and you were so kind, because we were having fall break, and you said, hey, I'm going to go down to France, it's a road trip, like, come along, and you're so outgoing, you're so engaging, you're so fun. Um, so I came along for the ride, and it really made a difference. We just had a really kind of calm, good trip, we got to see the goats on the mountain. Mm -hmm. Side, yeah. <laughs> um, and it made a real difference for me in that uh, INSEAD that like maybe I wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, things got better at INSEAD, fortunately. Uh, went off to Singapore, met my kind of core group of friends, and after INSEAD, I moved back to England and started a games company called Six to Start. Um, so we made a game called Zombies Run, uh, but it's kind of a torturous path from there because. I ended up running afoul of the immigration authorities in the UK about a few years after we'd started the company. So I actually had to quit the company um, so I could stay on the board, but I couldn't work at the company full time. So I went mm -hmm. to work for another friend of mine at her company. Um, and then kind of when things got cleared up, um, I actually met in with some other people and ended up starting a new company called Sonic Play. Sonic Play ran and it was a much different experience. We went out to Silicon Valley, we raised funds, we um, kind of did all the crazy Silicon Valley checklist things. <coughs> um, 
and unfortunately the company blew up so I ended up working at Skype and Microsoft um, I worked there for a few years kind of you know recentered regained uh, then moved to um, where I worked with a group called Appearin, which is a video conferencing system now known as Whereby, um, that's gone on to great success, which is fantastic for them. And um, after a few years at Telenor, uh, I became a VP of product management and innovation. So I was helping run the internal accelerator and was also overseeing the um, all the different products that were actually in Telenor from all the different business units and helping them figure out how do you allocate resources to these different products. Um, I left Telenor in 2017. And then for the last five years, what I've been doing is um, working kind of an executive level with the boards, the senior management of various startup companies um, around Norway and Estonia and England um, and Switzerland, um, helping them understand how to actually set up their product operations. Um, and also there's a lot of kind of the startup things like when you're scaling a company, um, how do you actually make this work when you go from 30 people to 200 people in two years? Mm. Um, what are the things you have to worry about when you suddenly go to the United States and that's a different market and you have to accommodate your product? So. That's pretty much it. That's how I got here. And I apologize for the coughing, which I hope you will cut out. Um, I'm still recovering from COVID. <laughs> I, I haven't got a cough button, so I'm gonna have to. Uh, I'm gonna have to do some uh, some crazy editing later. But uh, the poor Lisa is not very not very well, so so I'm uh, extra appreciative. No, uh, so uh, as you probably noticed, and those of you who love to play uh, podcasts in one and a half speed or two speed, like me. That's not going to work for you in this in this episode because Lisa talks very quickly, and uh, and she is she is an extremely smart uh, woman and has a, a lot of big brain activity going on in there. She might be humble about that, but it that is absolutely I knew, I've known that about Lisa since the first time I met her. Uh, so I'm just going to back up a little bit and ask you some clarifying questions because also not everyone who's listening to this is going to be the tech world with startups uh, and 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 how that all works and some of the terminology. So. Product management, mm -hmm. when it when you're talking about tech, to, to talk me through that. What does that mean? So product management is the idea that you're finding a problem out in the world, and this could be for technology. It could be something um, you know concrete, like uh, how are you going to make marks on a piece of paper mm -hmm. because you want to make art. Okay, well, how do you make colorful marks? How do you make colorful marks that actually go together? So whatever the problem is, what product management does is it studies the problem, um, and it tries to understand what are the things you need to know about that problem to actually make a really good solution for it. Mm -hmm. um, and then once you actually have this idea, of, you might test different things out to figure out like along the way, oh, okay, this will be a better solution than that. So to make marks on paper, maybe it's easier for me to use a pencil if I want to write a sentence, but if I want to make a colorful drawing, then maybe it's better for me to use pastels. Um, <clears throat> so you have to really think about what the use case is so that you can make a solution that's going to work the best for the person who's actually trying to use it. And so when you're talking to people about product management and you're going in to advise on that, mm -hmm. presumably they've already got an idea. They, they're like, I kind of know, we, we have an idea for this cool tech we're going to develop. Where do you step in there? Are you sort of saying, whoa, 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 back up? <laughs> we need to look at the fundamentals. Or are you kind of joining in and trying to help them gu guide a bit more sort of defined on where their project product management comes in? Um, it's kind of all those steps along the process. So I've, I've come in places where it's a group of engineers um, who like to build something. They built something and they said, we need to find some people who will buy this thing. And I say, oh, yeah, we need to pull back a lot and start saying, okay, what the problem is and then understand, okay, does your solution even make sense? And so a lot of, I think there's a fair chunk. Uh, this is one of the problems in Norwegian startups, I would say. One of the biggest problems is that, and I understand I'm an engineer myself, I like to build shiny things. And you have the ability to build shiny things. And Norway has amazing engineers who can build really shiny things. <laughs> but the problem may be, 
you don't necessarily need that shiny thing to fix your problem. So for example, um, if you need to fix a writing problem and you're like, hey, I can use this pencil to write things down and someone comes to you and they have this jet awesome pen that you know has Cooper colors and has lasers coming on top of it and so on. And you're saying, well, I just, I just need to write it like, thank you on this card. Your jet laser pen is amazing, but I probably don't need it. <laughs> and then they get really sad because they made this amazing jet laser pen. Um, so that's kind of like the worst case scenario is when they've already built something and then they're um, sad because they don't have a market. Um, and that is a place I come into. Um, and if I can get them early enough, so essentially they haven't you know, hired a bunch of people or done things, then I can usually help them fix, kind of redirect what they've got to get a better understanding of the problem and then start building something that's actually valid for the market. Mm -hmm. In other cases, what's happened is <coughs> the company has actually already built a product and they're moving towards a portfolio approach. So they've realized, hey, there's one problem area and we need to actually understand how do we address these other problems which are close and related to what we have to do. Um, so then they have to start thinking more like a portfolio approach um, right. rather than a particular singular approach and how does that look. Um, also, there are companies that are working in things in co more complicated spaces, so enterprise spaces, where you can't just solve, you know, it, it's not as simple as, oh, okay, I need to, like, write this thing down on this particular piece of paper. It's like, well, so I need to come up with a system that I can actually send this piece of paper to another place anywhere on Earth, um, and it will get to that person, um, even though I don't necessarily know who that person is. <laughs> so, and you've got to think a lot more about, okay, what's the system that's going to exist for this information to be able to be shared, displayed, given to the right person, directed in the right way, et cetera. Um, so these are all the kind of different uh, places I come in, places where they have a product and they have to redirect it, in places where they have one product that's really successful and they need to start building out um, mm -hmm. other products around it. Um, <coughs> and the last one, which is essentially this idea of building into a system. So understanding that um, the kinds of systems they're going to actually build are relatively complicated ones. So what are the pieces they need to have in order for that product to work in that enterprise environment? Okay. So in that case, it, when, when I guess in, in my head, my naive brain, startup startup world is always about, you know, is, is kind of these this group, small group of people looking at some usually technology nowadays, you know, it's, it's usually a tech related thing in my head, at least for the startup world. Um, and they're, they're kind of doing something that's n brand new, innovative, kind of something that hasn't been around before. But I guess based on what you just said, there's, there's a lot of startups who are sort of solving issues for businesses, big businesses and enterprises that are perhaps not as innovative, but have a new tool or a new sort of opportunity to just change the way things are done. Is that, would that be fair or is that, is it always innovation? Um. <laughs> Was that a terrible <laughs> question? Your face gets us. Sorry, I'm trying to figure out where to start to um, kind of address that. So the question I think, if I rephrase it, is... <laughs> so yes, please. Startup companies Can you, can you make it sound really smart? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the question I think is around, uh, the perception is startup companies are all about like bleeding edge innovation. So it's, right. it's some crazy new breakthrough technology that's going to solve COVID or do this, whatever. Um, whereas uh, the reality I may have portrayed is a little more prosaic, like, oh, these guys are only making an incremental change on something. <coughs> um, and I guess the answer to that is um, when you are a startup company, your solution definitely has to be 10x better than what else is out there in the market. Mm -hmm. um, because if it's not 10x better, then you won't be able to replace what's out there. 
But um, some of the companies I work with, like I said, they already have really successful product lines. And so those people don't need to have a product that's 10x better because they have a product that, you know, that did unseat the other mm. things and is really mm. solving it. And so they only need to make incremental changes to their product. So it's kind of two, as two um, places on the spectrum. So like there are products that are um, pulling together. Uh, I mean, like, because honestly, even if we kind of look at things like... Um, you know, the iPhone when it was created. I mean, really, that was just pulling together a lot of technology that already existed into a particular packaging. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the uh, and people are like, oh, but it was so innovative for its time. Well, was it? Because you had already had Handspring, which was another set of um, phones that had existed on the Symbian operating system that you already had the, uh, you already had a number of other kinds of, uh, you know, smart tech phones that existed, but they had just pulled things together in a different way mm -hmm. than what the iPhone decided to pull them together for. And so that's the thing with these solutions is that it may bring together a bunch of stuff that is kind of normal and prosaic. Um, I mean, blockchain's been around for 10 years, and yet people are still yeah. really excited about this. Nobody knows what blockchain can actually be used for, but boy, they are trying. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas like artificial intelligence and machine learning, I mean, the first job I had in Silicon Valley was using artificial intelligence to help program um, recommendation engines. We are still having companies that are new companies that are creating new recommendation engine technologies because this is a hard problem. And so people are working on this for more than two decades and still don't have a really good answer for this. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not, I, I guess the thing is that the answer to your question is if a, if a startup company is going to survive, its solution better be 10x better, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a technology change that makes them 10x better. Mm. It could just be bringing together things that already existed in a way that nobody else has done. Um, it represents that tenet. So yeah. uh, again, uh, just a quick clarification for anyone out there who feels a little behind. 10x is 10 times. Sorry. I, I went to business school. <laughs> I went to business school not knowing that, and everyone talked about 10x, and I felt extremely stupid because I thought it was some math problem that I didn't know about. <laughs> it just means 10 times. So. I apologize. I live in my own little technology world. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't apologize. But I just feel like I need to clarify for anyone who you know is out there yeah. and. I mean, I'm always the one who will ask the uh, a, a fuzzy, dumb question. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say, I'm not sure there are any, like, when it comes to coming from a, such a jargon-heavy industry like tech, like, I think it is way better to ask and clarify, because even yeah. within the industry, people are like, oh, yeah, that LCA and this CCB and this. <laughs> and it's like, oh, are we really talking about the same acronyms or not? Um, yeah. Is that carbon capture or are you talking about customer valuation? Like, <laughs> I think better to ask the questions, better to get those answers, um, and especially, like, in meetings and things like that I've been in when I'm coming in from the outside into whatever the product is and you know those companies are in their own world of jargon oh, and yeah, that I'm coming in and saying well I don't understand can you explain what this is can you explain what that is and sometimes there are people in the meeting who come afterwards and they're like thank you because <laughs> I didn't know what that was either <laughs> and I've been here three months or two months um, and a lot of what I tell product managers is when they start any job I was like this is the best point for you to like really break a lot of the jargon in the company to have those outside reviews I was like ask all the questions yeah. because in about two or three months you're going to be an insider again yeah. and then then you're you're just like them um, so yeah, have those fresh eyes yeah. um, ask those questions figure out what the stuff is because otherwise there's just going to be an assumption um, and it's too late <coughs> yeah and I think that's always uh, that's uh, that's that's a, a thing everywhere in business. It's, you know, that w it's, you, s you spend the first three to six months in a, in a new business. That's your opportunity to really see hmm. what things you know you can ha make a big difference with. Because once you're in, you're you're in with all the politics. You're in with all <laughs> all, the, all the issues. You've got a bit tired of the system that doesn't work or whatever that everyone was moaning about at the beginning, and you've now worked out how to 
get around it. But yeah, it, it, if you manage to keep in mind what you learned in that first few months and use it, and perhaps address those things, it's, it's always useful. So, um, Lisa, a bit more back to your background as well, because you've blazed through it, and I love that. But uh, and, and, I, and just to be clear as well, one thing I love about Lisa, and I did tell her this in advance, so I don't think she's going to be offended, is she's, she's one of the most sort of blunt, she's ready to say exactly what she thinks, and she will pull no punches in, in how she says it. So she is... She's very ready to call out uh, BS and very ready to be, uh, you know, uh, not suffer fools is, the, I think, the right expression. Uh, so I, I absolutely love that about you. Um, and <laughs> but uh, but you also blaze through uh, your your sort of your background. And I think I want to understand. You said you were, you were telling me just before about your school, uh, high school, and you know you weren't a top performer there. Uh, and uh, well, that's what you said just beforehand. But then you went on to do chemical engineering. You said. Right, chemical um, engineering. Yep, so yeah. chemical engineering. And then, and but then you end up being extremely talented with computer stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just want to see that. Where does that? How does that line go? What? Okay. And I guess what the reason I'm asking is it's kind of one of the questions I sort of said to you at the, beforehand. What what uh, what I might ask is sort of uh, also linked to that. What moves in your life have been sort of deliberate, and what have been circumstance and and maybe an element of luck and what's both or neither you know what where, where do you see like how do you see your pathway when you reflect back on it so luck has more to do with anything in anybody's life than anyone wants to give it credit for right. i think that's the I, first I, thing I to say i totally agree with you and i'm <laughs> glad you said it but i don't like saying so that in case people get offended um <laughs> i mean there's there's a wonderful book by a guy named richard wiseman and it's um and it's about luck. And the whole idea is that how do you increase your luck? Because it is actually possible to do it. And what it comes down to is what are your, uh, how many chance encounters do you have with people who are not in your regular daily life? That's basically what it comes down to. So it's walk a different path to work. It's roll a dice and go to a new coffee shop. It's try a different food. It's, you know, put yourself in a slightly uncomfortable situation and see what happens. Um, and one of the other pieces of advice that he has about the luck side is, this idea of get a friend to do it with you because then it's easier because then also it's a shared new experience. And so it's reinforcing the bonds of your friendship mm. um, to have this like, wow, we tried that coffee. That was bad. <laughs> <laughs> we now know don't go there for coffee. And you have a story now that you can tell with a friend. Um, and so then that may become the thing you do with your friend. So if we're, I can think of one example where a friend of mine came to visit me here in Oslo. And uh, he and his wife were like, okay, we're here to test all of the burgers. And I'm like, the burgers? You came to Oslo to test the burgers? I mean, we do actually have some pretty good hamburgers in, in Oslo, I'll say. But I was like, it seems strange because um, they're coming from London. And London has some really amazing burgers. So I was quite afraid that essentially these burgers were not going to stack up in Oslo yeah. against what they had their expectations set in London. Um, but we did. We spent the entire weekend going to, like, we literally ate, you know, two or three meals a day that were just burgers in all the different burger places in Oslo. So that way we would ha they had enough data to go back and say, okay, you know, we approve of the burgers in Oslo. This is a good place to come <laughs> if you want to have a good burger. <laughs> is that their thing? Is that their thing when they go to no, all cities? Or just, it was just a thing for Oslo? For, for whatever reason, when they came, they told me they're like, we want to do burgers. And I'm like, okay. And like, I've, I've traveled with them to other places um, and they, you know, it's never been burgers. And so I was, and, and in fact, this is the first time ever on a trip where they kind of had a specific food that they were chasing. So I'm not entirely sure where this came from. They just came up and had burgers. But anyway, so back to your actual question, which was um, about having not good performance. Like high school was fine, um, yeah. but and so that's what got me into university. Um, 
but in university I was a terrible student, like terrible, terrible student. In chemical engineering. Um, in chemical engineering. Yeah. But um, actually I was even worse student in computer science because we had to take computer science um, as part of our chemical engineering thing. And the thing I was good at in chemical engineering is I could run equipment. So I could run plants, I could run, so we had like a test plant, a pilot plant we had to run in our senior year. And I was really good at running the equipment to get good data. And I was really good at labs and things like that. But um, in general, I was not a great student. So I was, as, as uh, President Rhodes from my university said, I was part of the students that made the upper 50% possible. <coughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah. So when That's I, pulling no punches. Well, you know, <laughs> somebody's got to do it. So I, I, I served my part. Um, <coughs> So when I graduated, my like my expectation was I was supposed to go to grad school, but obviously not with those grades. And so the good thing about chemical engineering is that um, it's a path where essentially you can do your undergrad, go out for a few years into industry, and then come back and do um, do your PhD in whatever it is you're going to do, mm -hmm. fluid mechanics or you know biomedical stuff Devices, or yeah, yeah. vapor deposition, all the fun stuff that you can do in chemical engineering. Um, <coughs> so when I had when I was a senior and clearly seeing that like. Grad, grad school is not going to happen for me. Um, I went around to the grad students and I said, okay, what's the best thing for me to do in the next few years while I'm out in the industry? Um, you know, so should I go work at a biotech firm? Should I go work at like big, like a big facility, like a DuPont or a Monsanto or something like that? Um, you know, where should I go? And they said, oh, you need to learn how to program. And I was like, what? So like the class that I did even worse than I did <laughs> these other like theoretical classes, you're telling me I need to go to a program? And they're like, yeah, but it's fine because it's the late 90s, it's Silicon Valley, they're just gonna hold a mirror up to your mouth and see if you can fog it, and then they'll teach you everything you need to know. And I thought, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I was like, how could they possibly hire a chemical engineer who is you know, terrible at this? Like this is, you know, I'm not gonna get a job. And they're like, no, no, really, we're not kidding. Just go to Silicon Valley and you'll sort this. So one of my classmates had actually transferred to Stanford and um, so I went to go visit him, and when I so I flew out there for spring break, yeah. and um, <coughs> again this is where the luck stuff comes in, right? So I, this is the person who I met in university who had been with me for two years, and then flew out and like transferred to Stanford. So I went to go see him for, um, and I, the day I came there, he was like, "Hey, he's like, do you have your CD?" And I was like, "Well, I have like a copy on like you know, at that time my." remote mail server <laughs> so um he's like great he's like print out a bunch of copies there's a job fair going on right now for the bunch of um computer startups he's like so go he's like so just print it out he's like and just tell them you're an engineer and just leave off the fact you're a chemical engineer <laughs> he's like i'm gonna see what happens um and it was from that job fair that i actually ended up getting my first job wow. with the artificial intelligence company that did the recommendation engine stuff so I mean, but that's luck. It was luck that I knew that guy. It was luck that the fair happened to be that day that I happened to be on a campus with him. Um, you know, and like, so it's, it's happenstance that I was able to actually get that. Um, and then once I started working in it, then I figured out how to program. I figured out how these systems worked. And, um, you know, over time, like several years later, I was at somebody's wedding <coughs> and they hadn't seen me for a few years because, you know, graduate and go your separate ways. And um, so the guys were asking me, they're like, hey, so what did you end up, you know, you're out here in Silicon Valley, are you working for one of the biotechs? I said, no, I'm working in this uh, company that does like this artificial intelligence stuff, uses this like language called Kate, which is used by NASA for the satellites. And they're like, yeah, we know Kate. How are you programming in Kate? Cause like you're incompetent when it comes <laughs> to computers. And I'm like, I know, but like I figured it out and like now they're paying me and this works. And um, you know, so now I have this career in computers. Um, and so also having worked in startup companies, like, so the very first company I worked for, it went public. 
um, during the dot-com boom. So it went through like the whole thing of um, all the excitement leading up to the IPO and the big parties and um, all the weird trips to Napa Valley. <laughs> all the kind of like dot-com stories you've heard and the things that were repeated in 2010 and the things that are repeated now, like all true and it's probably worse than you think it is is probably the better way to put it. Um, so, you know, it was it was a very successful thing. But again, I there were kind of the other parts of this, which is I had been in that really bad car accident. And so I was also struggling. So when did that yeah. happen? Like Six how, months after I moved. So to, to, stamp, to Silicon to Valley. Silicon Valley, yeah. yeah. Wow. So six months after I moved, I got in a really bad car accident. And so then what was really tricky is um, I was in rehabilitation. And so, um, <coughs> and in the United States, uh, obviously you have to pay for your own healthcare. So mm -hmm. even though I was insured, the problem was that because it was a car accident, it was a litigious activity. Therefore, my insurance company would not cover any of my medical bills. So I had to pay for my medical bills out of pocket while I was waiting for the other insurance company to show up. Um, what ensued was like a bunch of lawsuits. Um, and at the end of the day, so I was in rehab um, to try to like rehabilitation. So like physio three times a week, um, like scads of painkillers and anti-inflammatories and things like that, trying to keep, keep things in manageable. Um, <coughs> like it, uh, it was just a unbelievable pain. So like w waking up every day in unbelievable pain, um, trying all these different kinds of uh, drugs to try to manage the pain, to try to manage the rebuilding. Um, so anyway, this is like several years in process. And then about three years after, two years after the accident, um, the case goes to arbitration. And in arbitration, they award me $45,000. And the outstanding medical bills at that time were $69,000. 15000 of the 45000 went to my lawyer. And then 30000 was left over to pay the 69000 But like I said, I was really lucky, again, luck, <laughs> that my company had gone public. So I was able to use the money of the proceeds from the IPO mm -hmm. to actually pay the medical bills. And that was the problem is that $69,000, it still wasn't done. There was still more, like it was ongoing yeah. treatment. So I, uh, again, the second company I worked for, it got sold. And so I was able to actually pay, you know, since it got sold, then my shares vested, then I had another chunk of cash to be able to pay another chunk of medical bills. But it was, you know, you can't, uh, you know, when, you're, when your medical bills are fast becoming um, more than your annual income, <laughs> you realize this is not a sustainable situation. So, no. um, <coughs> well, I remember when we met as yeah. well, like in INSEAD, you were in a lot of pain still. And, yeah. you know, it's uh, what well, you mentioned actually recently that you're still going regularly to. Yeah, I mean, it's a chronic thing. Yeah. Like, it's not a, you know, it's not a get out of jail free card. It's this is your condition. You have to manage it. So how did you sort of manage that alongside having to learn? code having to learn to you know you, you it wasn't i guess it wasn't just coding it was also like learning how to work and be a sort of contributing member of the team and everything you know this is your first sort of proper job <laughs> yeah, uh, well i mean how, how did you how did you pull all that together like that must have been really tough well most like so in university i had to work through university as well right, so it wasn't right, right. really my first job and it yeah. was also a support first job career so job or whatever yeah, yeah i guess yeah, yeah. Um, <coughs> well, I mean, part of it, I think, again, I was super lucky. So, um, when I, uh, <coughs> um, so the, the, it, like, so the group I was working with, we were all in, um, doing kind of like developer support. So like people go out and make systems, the systems would break. We'd have to actually fly out on site and try to fix their servers, standing in server rooms that were very, very cold for very, very long periods of time, trying to get the servers back online. <coughs> um, but the guys that were also on the team, um, they were really supportive. Like they were really um, helpful. In, and I mean like helpful in a way of like, <coughs> um, there was one of the treatments that I had to go through and it would take a week um, to go through the treatment. And um, so they would uh, like, 
so they would give me the treatment and then essentially I, it took about seven to ten days to recover from the thing to then kind of reset me to try to go on to the next level of rehabilitation um, and so during that time it's very important that I actually eat a particular diet and make sure I eat because mm -hmm. otherwise um, then the drug treatments they were giving me were going to have more of an effect right because it's the whole thing of like you have to worry about all the biology and things like that yeah, yeah, and yeah, what's yeah. getting um, used so anyway so these guys actually so I was like really worried because I'm like wow like they have this like here are your dietary requirements you have to do this can you actually source this out so I was sitting at home um, before the procedure happened I was like man what am I going to do about this and one of my housemates came home um, and he's like hey what are you looking at and I was like well this is the thing for my treatment that I'm going to have and this is what I have to do and so he's like oh he's like oh, I'm, I'm happy to like cook all the food you need for that week. He's like, that's not a problem. And so he actually cooked an amazing set of meals for me <laughs> that week. And we're talking like breakfast, lunch, dinner. So he like made little packets, like, that's so awesome. he would make the food and like, um, like for dinner, then he and the, my other housemate, we would like all have dinner together. And they were like, you know, you know, we're going to try to encourage you to eat and try to do these things, whatever. And then several years later, I actually had the same procedure again. And I was living um, with a different housemates at that point in time. And uh, another guy who had actually been on that team before, he's like, hey, I heard you're having that procedure. He's like, I, he's like I'm happy to come and cook you all the meals. Um, <clears throat> and just so we're clear on this, <laughs> this is not like guys who are trying to date me. <laughs> These were just guys good, who are good really people. good souls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so they, um, yeah, so like he came to my house and he would like cook all the food and like for my other two housemates, um, like, because these guys just really, really love to cook, and suddenly it was, like, a captive audience, because yeah. I definitely had to eat. They were like, great, this is an excuse for me to come and, like, make all this food, and then um, these people have it. So, yeah, so I was really super lucky that those guys were there at that time to help support that kind of thing. Um, and then in terms of learning stuff, um, I guess the thing is that it's, it's always interesting, like, the core engineering thing, I think, is that um, it's always interesting to figure out how to solve a problem. And mm. a lot of coding is just that. How do you actually solve this problem? How do you think about it? What are the um, aspects around it? How do you, uh, like, what happened? Why did things break? Um, how do you actually unbreak them? <coughs> so learning that kind of stuff in computers and, like, system and parts and the server structures and so on definitely leads into the product management side of things, which is, you know, worry about the problem and worry a lot about the problem. Because this, mm. once you actually understand how the problem works, it's much easier to actually find a solution. Um, and so it, that kind of made me reflect a lot of my engineering experiences. Wow, I built a lot of really stupid stuff because <laughs> I didn't actually spend the time to actually really understand the problem. So no wonder I built it, it broke, I built it, it broke, I built it, it broke. And I was just like, man, like, like you know, my users are so stupid, right? That was always the yeah, thing that yeah. people used to say. I was like, oh, yeah, they just don't understand. And it's like, that's, that's ridiculous. Like, these are people who are running multi-million dollar systems. Um, they surely are not stupid people. But it, it took me a long time to kind of come to that. Um, honestly, like the way I came to that realization was when you're doing playtesting for games, it doesn't matter how much time you spent building something. Um, it only matters that it's fun. And so my very first kind of user testing for game design, <coughs> um, that was like the cold water. It was like, oh man, I made these really great puzzles. People are going to like, this is going to be amazing. They're just going to love it, whatever. And I got totally like killed on all of them and everything. And I was like, oh, but I worked so hard. And, you know, my co-founder was like, yeah, but it doesn't matter. Like, it wasn't fun. Yeah. And yeah, that's yeah. all that matters is if the users can use it, if the users think it's fun, if, the, you know, if our players enjoy it, then it's good. But if it's not, 
you. Who cares? Yeah, you can't. You, I, I can't remember your exact quote, but you, I, I know that you've been quoted as uh, that uh, listening to your customers. Uh, you know, all, all the, the, the the main thing you need to do is listen to the customers as well. What what, what do they need? What do they actually want? Yeah, but Are actually, this gives me a wonderful opportunity to put to death one of the things I keep hearing, oh. which is the Henry Ford thing. Which is, oh, Henry Ford says, oh, if I listen to my customers, I get faster horses. That means Henry Ford was a really, really crap user researcher because if he was a good user researcher, and I'm going to cite my friend Erica Gibson on this, then he would have understood that the problem was people want to get from point A to point B faster. And maybe now we'd have flying cars. Maybe now we'd have like transport devices where we just like, you know, immediately tra- you know, go from one place to another place immediately, right? But no, he was like, oh, I'm making my customers solve the problem by saying, what do you want? What you yeah. need to do is say, what's your issue? So tell me about your day. Tell me what's not, you know, what's not working. What's frustrating you? What makes you irritated? Because a lot of times when you're doing these user research or things like that, and you're listening to somebody's day, no one's going to say like, oh, it's really terrible <coughs> that I have to spend uh, 20 minutes dressing my kid. It's like, you can't say that. It's supposed to be a wonderful bonding time <laughs> with you trying to get the socks onto your child, right? <laughs> like, this is how it goes. But... Um, if people listen to that and they're like, well, do you really want to spend 20 minutes of your quality time dressing your kid? Or if we had a different way of actually having the kid dress themselves or do this so that the time you can spend with your kid is actually now playing and blowing bubbles and putting Play-Doh yeah. rather than them screaming while you're trying to actually put on the shirt that they said was their favorite shirt and now they've decided is not their favorite shirt because you've cut their cheese in half. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> Lisa, you sound like you've been around uh, little people a little much, but uh, it's exactly right. Um, I, I think it, w- w- one thing I wanted to mention as well was because l- linked into that, you, you mentioned a very quickly about Six to Start and Run Zombies Run, right? Mm-hmm. Which was a very successful, I think, uh, as yeah, far yeah. as I understand, a very successful app that you built, right? App uh, and. Well, I, I think I know what it is. I used it once a long time ago now. <laughs> but it, do you want to talk me through that? Because that is a good example in my mind of that fun and solving a different, solving a problem in a very different way. Yeah. So, uh, so the company I had uh, six to start, what our company was known for was essentially tran- uh, combining the digital world and the real world. So doing things like you would have a digital treasure hunt where essentially you'd have to go to a particular place, get some information from that, and then use it um, online to actually fill out some additional information. So we built games for people like Muse, and um, their thing was uh, United States of Eurasia. Muse, the band. Um, So we made a game for them called United States of Eurasia. We also made a game for Death Cab for Cutie um, around the video transportation. Uh, That was all about like QR codes. Um, (coughs) So... We used to build games that would kind of combine this online and offline world. So when we actually wanted to create our own game, that was part of the thing that was really important, is we wanted to create a game where people were going to do things in the real world and be rewarded in the virtual world. So um, where the Zombies Run thing came from, um, and I, I have zero credit for this, so just so we're clear, like I'm one of the co-founders of the company, but in, when it comes to Zombies Run, I had nothing to do with this. <laughs> I did all the boring stuff, like read the legal contracts and work out like the logistics of how we actually transfer money from the United States on a Kickstarter to like the UK. Like I do all the boring operational things. I am not creative. I am not, um, yeah, I have zero to do with the actual game creation, but I can tell you the game creation story. So it went like this. Um, my co-founder, Adrian, um, was working on trying to figure out like fitness stuff. So we've been researching a lot around the fitness space and trying to get people to move and thinking about um, this kind of idea of like, how do we change? Mm-hmm. Um, and <coughs> he'd been trying some ideas uh, and kind of nothing was really sticking. Um, and so he was a bit frustrated. And then 
Naomi Alderman, who is a very famous author now, um, she had joined a running group in London um, to kind of get fit. That was kind of her thing. She was like, oh, I'm going to try running and see how this goes. And in the introductory um, like run, uh, different people were saying like, oh, well, why are you here? And so one person was like, oh, I want to get fit. And one person's like, oh, I want to lose weight. And then one person said, well, when the zombie apocalypse comes, I want to be able to outrun all of you. And so Naomi heard that and said, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> so Naomi um, called up Adrian and said, like, I got this. Like, like we're going to make this game and we're going to make this game where essentially people are running away from zombies because zombies aren't like hard to run away from. Like, you just have to kind of keep ahead of the shuffling horde so like everybody can run away from zombies. It's, you don't have to be like a super sprinty person. Um, and it's going to be the zombie apocalypse story. So like you're going to have a role to like be, you know, what ended up being the supply runner, runner five to go get supplies for this. Um, and it'll be like a, 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 a person's story of like how they're actually helping, um, you know, this town survive. And so there's like this whole thing. Anyway, so um, that was kind of where it came from. And so then what happened is we needed money, <laughs> as usual, to actually do the game development. And so we had to test a bunch of stuff out. So like I mentioned, one of the things we had to test was, okay, how are we going to get the money to do this? Um, and at that point, Kickstarter had just started. So Kickstarter is this website where you can actually raise money for... Um, independent art projects, things like that. And at that point in time, Kickstarter had just been used for kind of relatively small things. People, you know, raising a couple thousand dollars US to do like, you know, art. <laughs> um, uh, really kind of simple art projects. And Adrian and I saw it and said, hey, wait a minute, what if we use this to try to raise the money? So we tested it out by basically, Adrian said he was gonna write a book called The History of the Future and 100 Objects. So this is a takeoff of the British Museum, which at that time was going a, a display called the history you know history of the world in 100 objects because um, god knows the british museum has definitely more than 100 objects to tell the entire history of the world um, <coughs> so um so yeah so he said okay i'm gonna write this book it's a history of the future in 100 objects and um then we went on kickstarter we wrote up a profile for him we did the whole thing um i figured out again this is this is the my contribution i figured out like the back end stuff of, like okay we we need a u.s account to do this we need this i'm an american i can sort this da 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 um, and we ran the campaign and it worked. Like we had raised whatever, $3,000. And we're like, okay, so unknown British dude able to raise money from Americans with an idea. So we're pretty sure we can like sort something out. Now we understand a lot more about how to run this campaign. We can then do something for <coughs> um, Zombies Run. And so that summer then uh, Adrian and Naomi kind of like hashed it out as to like how the gameplay would actually work. And we also thought through like, okay, how does the, um, how do we actually run the campaign for Kickstarter? And so then the Kickstarter campaign we ran in the fall. Um, and again, we were like, luck comes in here because uh, we ran the campaign and it, uh, we knew like, for example, you have to have 50% of your money pledged up front. So you, we kind of knew we had to line up the people to pledge the money for the first day so that way we would have the momentum to actually mm -hmm. show up on the page. So that way you would um, have more people be like, oh, they've already gotten 50%. Well, then it's easy for me to go ahead and put in the $10, whatever. And so that's like a really important thing to know about Kickstarter campaigns or Indiegogo or any of these is that um, if you don't have all of your, uh, at least half the money you want to raise lined up before the actual thing starts, and you really need to be on top of these people to make sure that like, hey, you are giving this money, you're going to get it between these hours at this time, we're going to do this kickoff, etc. Um, so that way you can actually have the momentum you need to actually get onto the front page to then have other people kind of trickle in. Right. Um, so yeah, so that's something else I've worked on over the years is helping other people get their Kickstarter campaign sorted. Um, so yeah, so we, so we got the cash in, we got the people coming. 
And then we got lucky because essentially we got picked up by several places that were like, hey, look at this weird thing. These people are doing this zombie game, but you're actually having to physically run while you play the zombie game. Um, and so we ended up in Forbes, um, which is amazing because I think I was the first in Seattle to have anything show up in Forbes. Nice. <laughs> I think it was about four years after we graduated. And uh, so I was happy that we were in Forbes because I was like, look, zombies in Forbes. I don't think anybody else in our class did that. <laughs> um, and so what also, so the luck thing is like, okay, so we, we got picked up. And so we ended up being, um, we had the most number of backers ever in the history of Kickstarter. So we had 3,000 backers for that wow. project. Okay. Um, and we raised way more money than we had planned on. So we raised $72,000. Um, and so Kickstarter was thrilled with us. They're like, oh my goodness, thank you so much. You have totally validated um, this us. idea that we have with <laughs> us. And you are now a great story. And so we have a wonderful relationship with Kickstarter. They're great people. Um, <coughs> and so then... Um, the uh, so the luck kind of continued essentially having this um, press, uh, you know, really helped when we kind of like got things launched um, and got it out the door. But around the time that we were about to launch, so kind of January February, there was like a big push in the United States about how video games were like terrible for people. Mm -hmm. um, and so then suddenly we got to be the opposite story, which was oh, but look, there is this app that makes people run. And so is that like how that video games are bad? And so again, we enjoyed all of this press and all of this coverage that had nothing to do with us. It was just lucky that at some point somebody decided they wanted to go bash on video games and then we ended up being the counter example for this. Um, <coughs> so yeah, so that was... Uh, but that must have come up in sort of uh, the product management type of men like thought process when you're, when you're discussing Zombies Run. You know, like there must have been a thing there is like we can play to that right or is it not really in your mind well i mean we we certainly weren't like how, how could we know that that was going to be a thing that happened in the united states right like so once it happens then you're like hey let's take advantage of this awesome sauce but yeah. also we were a skeleton crew of people so in terms of the things that we were prioritizing at that time it wasn't so much press coverage as it was oh god we have to get this thing out the door i mean like because you know we had to do a bunch of recordings and it was our first version of the app and like you know it had like a deadline to get out there for people to actually use it um so you know in certain ways, sometimes this stuff happens, and like if we had had more resources, yeah, maybe we could have made a bigger splash because we would have been able to use that. But the right. reality was at the time, I will tell you, like it was much more hand to mouth. Like we had given up our office at that point. We were doing the recor recordings in our um, director of audio's bedroom, so like it was a bunch of mattresses around the walls. Oh, like wow. it yeah. was, you know, it was a scrappy operation at that point. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, it worked, but I think that there's chunks of luck that we got really lucky with so where do you think now wh wh like where's six to start now you, you said you had to wrap it up and yeah so we sold the company um last year uh to all of x so um and all of x is like a big consortium company that actually works in all kinds of uh, fitness applications they have mm -hmm. like fitness mirrors and they have um, other applications that are also like promoting health and fitness um so that's awesome. Yep. So I am now officially not part of the business anymore. So I am not a <laughs> spokesperson. I can't like, you know, things are going great. So, you know, we get updates. We see what's happening in the press and, you know, things are going well. My I wanted to change that tack slightly, but it, because uh, the, the world you work in, as far as I understand it, mm -hmm. and then uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on my base assumption, but it's pretty stressful because of, you know, there's a lot of pressure, especially in startup world. There's, you know, people are cash strapped. Mm -hmm. They are, it's scary, I guess, because you don't know if it's going to get picked up. You don't know if the, 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 mm -hmm. the company's ever going to make it. And even if you've got a great product that's solving exactly the problem that the customers need solved that is very much in demand, 
if the worlds don't come together in the right way, if you can't get the product out the door before someone else comes along and starts solving it a different way, or if you can't get the cash to market it in the right way, or you can't get it, you know, distributed in the right way, all of those factors can sort of cause it a disaster, right? And so I guess that's sitting heavy on a lot of people who run startup shoulders. They're sitting there saying, this is a lot of pressure. Uh, and the reason I'm framing what, like all of this is, I can imagine that high pressure, very intense uh, and stressful environment causes a lot of people to kind of struggle with their mental health and with their with their mindset of how to how to how to keep holding on to this. How do I you know how long can we really suffer this for? Yeah. Like how long can I live on my mom's couch? How long can I you know how long can we literally bootstrap this for? So, I mean, I think the, the canonical example of this is when there's a suicide in the startup world. So normally right. that hits the headlines and such and such a person who is leading this company that seemed to you know, be all the tech press darling and now the founder's dead. Um, or uh, like in the one I kind of think of it, the, the, the turning point in many ways was, um, I think it was maybe in 2012 or 2013, I'm not sure. Um, but a founder of a company that was... Um, he was in the midst of raising its next round, and apparently things were worse than what he had pitched. Um, and so uh, he had a lot of crushing pressure about this, and he killed himself. Um, <coughs> and because the company was so high profile, um, he uh, then, at that point, there was a lot of discussion around this idea of like mental health and founders and um, people not spending enough time paying attention to uh, the stresses and strains and not taking care of themselves and so on. And that's pretty... Like certainly when I started off in Silicon Valley, I slept under my desk. I didn't take vacation for two years. Um, you know, it, they have this like warrior mentality of like, rah, we're getting through this. However, I will also tell you, um, and again, this is anecdata, data, not like real data, but probably a third of um, the people I knew were taking illicit drugs because they were trying to manage their health situation. Um, and they were too afraid to actually go seek actual help because they didn't want to increase their insurance premiums of their company. And if they went to go seek mental health, then it was going to cost their company money because that meant that they were actually seeking more medical attention. Mm. Um, if they were actually diagnosed with something like depression or bipolar or something that actually was like, oh, this is going to take us a while to fix. And it's not just, oh, okay, you know, yeah, you're whatever. Like, oh, it, this, you broke your leg. Fine. We can fix your broken leg. And in six weeks, you'll be out of your cast and on your merry way. Oh, you have depression. Well, this isn't going to be something we can put a cast on you and hope for the best in six weeks, right? Mm. Um, so a lot of them wouldn't, even though they knew that they had these mental illnesses from like their parents' insurance or whatever, um, they wouldn't seek treatment through official channels because they didn't want to actually have it on their record that potentially would increase the insurance premiums of their companies. Um, apparently things are better now because with Obamacare that has actually changed some of this, but at the same time there is still a, uh, there's still a stigma of going out and seeking the help when, um, when there is so much crushing pressure on, uh, for you as a founder, or even just the people who are working in the startup companies, because mm -hmm. your life is also very, very unstable, um, even as an employee in a startup company. And this is one of the lessons, I think, that um, from early Silicon Valley was, look, any company you join won't be there. It's m not very likely will be there in five years, because it's not very likely the company will be there in five years. Mm -hmm. So your insurance in startup land is that you look around and say, who are the good people that I'm working with, and do I want to work with them again? And then you follow them to the other companies. And so more than half the jobs I've ever gotten have always been because, oh, it was somebody I worked with before. I really liked them. And so they pulled me into the company. Mm. Um, and when I similarly had to like build my team at Telenor or um, other places, 
then I would say, okay, I'm bringing this person and this person because I've worked with them and they can do exactly this job. They can fix this thing. They can do these things. And so it's your network that is your safety net. But even your network is very stressful because if you're having mental health issues and you're not able to maintain your network because you don't go and have the coffees and the group beers and whatever else, then you're losing even more security. (laughs) So it's it's a pretty vicious cycle. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's brutal. Hmm. That's brutal. No, I, I, I think, uh, well, so then, then the, so is it then getting the, better? Advi- yes. the advice <laughs> is probably seek help, I guess, or like, don't be afraid to well, seek help. Or so I guess the big difference for me was that when I came to Europe um, <coughs> and I was starting Six to Start, uh, one of the things that kind of, it was, it was an unusual realization for me to have because everybody else in Britain was like, that's the dumbest, like, that's the dumbest thing we've ever heard, which is I looked around and I said, wait a minute, I can hire anybody. And they're like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, like in Silicon Valley, like when you're a really early stage startup company, you can hire people who are like less than 25 <laughs> because right. you need somebody who has an astronomical risk profile who's willing to go like without health insurance, without like treatment, without this, whatever, whatever, whatever. I was like, but in Britain, nobody's worried about breaking your arm and mm. like not getting treatment. Like that's not a thing. Whereas like in Silicon Valley, it is. Um, and so, like, it just opened this idea, like, wow, this universal healthcare thing now makes my life better as an entrepreneur because I can hire somebody who has kids because they won't be so worried about health insurance. I can hire somebody who's, like, a super senior architect. Um, mm. And so that really, um, so it was an interesting realization that it's like, wow, this healthcare thing, yeah, sure, it drove me out of the United States because I couldn't afford the healthcare bills. But it also made a huge difference for me as an entrepreneur because it meant that I suddenly had a whole range of people I could. So the only thing that they were willing to risk was, yeah, okay, I may not make as much money here as mm. I would somewhere else. And mm. I believe in your company, believe in the upside, so therefore I'll come and I'll do this. Um, but suddenly these people weren't basically tying in their health care and saying, well, it's okay because my wife has a really good job at XYZ, so therefore we'll use her health care to do this. Yeah. Um, or, you know, my husband has a really good job, therefore we'll use his health care to do this. Suddenly it was like, oh, health care is not a consideration anymore. Um, now, unfortunately, as you know, being British, um, the mental health services in Britain are still not perfect, no, no. <laughs> um, but they are better than nothing. And so um, over time, like there were definitely uh, working, I think, in the creative world um, with games and so on and so forth. I think people are much more free about talking about like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I'm not 100 percent all there. I am bipolar. I have this issue. I am, um, you know, I've had manic depression and I've had, you know, these issues. Um behavioral disorders, ADHD, da, da. like people are just much more open about this, I feel, in the creative industry. Um, so when we actually worked with these people, it was not it was not as much of a stigma, it felt like, mm. in working with them, whereas the engineering side and the technology side, it was still very much like, well, yes, he's got a thing. It's like, <laughs> okay, so he has depression, like, but he can code, so who cares? Yeah. <laughs> like, and he's actually under treatment, which means that he's functional. And and I guess that would be the really, the kind of sad thing that happened, or I saw happen in Silicon Valley, is there are people who are really, really bright, really bright, but also really not stable. And so the problem would be, like, literally, I remember times when um, there would be people who would call me, and they would be in tears, and they'd be flipping out because they were having an incident, and they were like, I can't go to seek professional help. I am calling on my friends to try to be that blanket to support me while I'm actually having this incident. So can you guys help cobble this together so we can figure out how to do this? And so like literally we were calling like one of my housemates had um, one of his friends in med school. And so when people would have an episode, we'd call the guy who was in med school and be like, okay, this person's having an episode. What are our options? 
um, how do we do this without actually, you know, using real medical access? Um, And, like, that's a messed up situation. Um, And also, like, in Britain, like, if there was something wrong with one of my employees, like, somebody was sick or whatever, like, we had this really horrible week where everybody got norovirus. (laughs) Yeah, that's a horrible week. (laughs) It was a terrible, terrible week for everybody. But the thing is, like, as management, we could be like, dude, go to your doctor, go get treatment. And it wasn't like a very politically loaded thing. Whereas in the United States, if, um, if you know, everybody got norovirus, we could never say that. You could never say that because you mm. had no idea what was going on. Like maybe these people were not, you know, it was too expensive. It was too out of the way. They couldn't do it for their kids. Like whatever it was. Um, yeah. So that makes a huge difference. So do you think then the world is sort of changing more in terms of innovation, tech space, like his has Silicon Valley lost a bit of its edge because of those sorts of things as well, or I mean, because I know that there's a, a lot of hotspots around the world. I mean, I lived in Bangalore, Bangalore yeah. and Hyderabad, the two places where so much Indian uh, tech talent is mm-hmm. sort of just <laughs> centering on, uh, and and there's other countries as well. I mean, you know, there's other countries as well which are having lots of uh, innovation tech centers. The UK has a uh, has made a real push for that. Mm-hmm. Is it in your mind, is there is there something changing or shifting in that, or is still Silicon Valley kind of the pinnacle? I mean, at the end of the day, honestly, he who has the gold makes the rules. So right. most of the money is still sitting in Silicon Valley. Right. Um, and so this is kind of where the diversity of things like the people who are the ones who have the money. So the more people who have money in places like India or in places like China or in like Malaysia, Australia, mm chad wherever i mean um if there is more capital then there can be more stuff that happens because the reality of innovation is that a lot of the reason why silicon valley can be silicon valley is because there are a lot of really wealthy people who graduate from university without debt because their parents paid for it Mm. so they can actually afford to take the risk which is why you see so many white male founders or people who are upper middle class who are doing this i mean you know mark zuckerberg didn't come from a very poor origins neither did bill gates um while steve jobs may have dropped out of university at the same time, he still actually had a much better support system than, you know, the homebrew club that Wozniak had. Like, they're just, um, there are a lot more resources available to a certain class of people. And yeah. so you tend to get that certain class of startup people in Silicon Valley who actually have more people they can call on for more resources. Like, this idea of, like, friends, family, and fools, the very first round you ever raise in a startup company is people who are around you. In order for that to happen... They have to have money in the first yeah, place. Yeah. You know, Bezos didn't get money from like, wow, my long dead uncle gave me his inheritance. No, his parents gave him a few hundred thousand. Just a few hundred, like, here you go, kids. Here's yeah. a few hundred thousand. Yeah. That's a very different world to live in. And I know, like, we went to INSEAD, and so we know we have classmates who are certainly in that world where, you know, and, um, you know, shout out to uh, Marwan and Dan who are running the, the venture fund. They're coming on my podcast, by oh, the way. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so shout out to them <laughs> um, for the work that they're doing um, in terms of actually trying to get more capital from our class because we're the people who have this cash to then redirect it um, to more diverse founders in more places. Mm. And that's, a, that's the kind of um, like generational thing you need to have happen is essentially more money has to get out there into more places to do it. But without that cash, it's very difficult because a lot of what Silicon Valley is is people throwing money in a suitcase and burning it. And 
that's the reality of startup land is that most of the stuff isn't going to work. Most of it's going to fail. Most yeah. of it's going to be like a complete and utter like lack of success. But the thing is what it does is it teaches people. So like the startup companies I went to um, in terms of like, you know, who doesn't make it, there's, there's a very different idea of who doesn't make it if you're a lone person who's like sitting in a place coding something up by yourself trying to do it and you're a person who, I mean, okay, so I can, I can tell you a, a founder story. Once upon a time, there was a really big company and they decided, and they had a change of CEO and so um, the new CEO chucked out all the product people. One of those product people um, was sitting on a couch playing Arkham Asylum with another friend of mine <laughs> and <coughs> a number of VCs had approached that person and said, hey, um, here's $2 million, just let us know whatever you're gonna do. So they, he had nothing. He, he was playing Arkham Asylum on his couch. Um, and <clears throat> so they kind of, like, so he kind of went pitching, but it was more kind of like having chats because he had this really, really strong network. And from this, he was able to get a chunk of cash. And so they then started this company and kind of worked on this particular technology. Um, and the person who had given them the cash in the end, or the, the one they actually ended up taking it from, when things weren't working out, then they ended up getting swept up um, into some of the companies that basically when Marissa Meyer took over Yahoo and then went on a spend on a buying spree of a bunch of different companies. So their company got bought as one of those things in the buying spree because of who their investor was. Now the reality was the founders kind of walked away with nothing because the investors were like, well, we're just recouping our cash. Mm -hmm. um, and we see that we don't really believe in you anymore. We don't think this is actually happening. And so, you know, but at the same time, they get to say they had an exit and they had an exit too. Yahoo in the Marissa Meyer buying. So it's like, hey, this is a great story to tell. Have something to add to your portfolio. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, and the thing is, they do, they still have those connections for that cash. Um, and the investors didn't get burned because they actually got their cash back. So there's a lot of waste in the Silicon Valley system. And the thing is, I think that a lot of what the rest of the world doesn't understand is that that is a necessary part of this game because the things they learned from that. Um, from running that particular thing have gone on to another company and made a significant difference in how they do this. But they never would have had that other functionality in other company if these guys hadn't done their startup company here to burn through a lot of money, cash, and education to actually get there. So there's a ton of waste, but it's a lot of education. So there's an interesting uh, segue there to actually talk about the theme of my podcast, which is wind building. <laughs> and, uh, but, I, but I think one thing that's been interesting talk to a lot of people about about the different themes uh, that I I perceive there to be involved in constructing something that is successful or, or, or building an achievement for yourself or for a team or for a, for a business and one of the things I have in there is is fail right is, is fail and learn learn from your fails and you know be, be, be prepared to fail because you've got to design the right strategy to be able to execute a strategy to win in whatever it is you've defined as the game you're in and whatever it is you've defined as a win so to, to get there you've got to design a strategy that's the best one for being able to win and then you've got to work out how you execute that strategy and what skills and talents and everything you need to execute the strategy in the best way possible but then you've got to learn how to do that right and that's the fail bit is like then you've got to iterate and work out okay we've got to build to, towards that we've got to learn from the mistakes we make and adjust and, and adjust the strategy and that fail element a lot of people get to the point there and say you know how can you fail in business you know you don't fail we don't we don't allow ourselves to fail and i feel very strongly that well you do you just don't 
pin the entire th the entire survival of your company and your business on failing once, right? You fail in parts of the strategy that you're you're building out. So you test things out on the market. You test out a new product, or you test out a new marketing strategy, or you test out a new digital, uh, you know, paid search campaign, whatever it is. But and those things you can fail in, but then you learn and you adjust. And you, 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 so you take small fails, I suppose it should probably be. But, yeah. but what you've just described in the startup world is exactly what I would class as sort of, you know, okay, so that maybe it's not fail. It may, maybe fail is the wrong word. It's too strong. But that, that they didn't achieve exactly what they would have set out to do in terms of building a company. But, but, but they got an exit and they got, they, 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 they got a lot of things out of it and then they learned from that and could build on. So the, the negatives of the fact that it didn't develop into some, you know, multi-million dollar business is contrasted with what they then took on to the next, next adventure. You're looking, uh, next venture, you're looking very suspicious. I'm trying to work out where you're going. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I just think it's, it's interesting <laughs> because, because that sort of, that uh, for me, it's interesting because that sort of, because I've had a lot of people push back on this fail thing. I've had a lot of people push back on the win thing as well. Like people talking about, well, when they talk about winning, they get, uh, the people get uh, upset because they think, well, then there's got to be a loser and things. And I, I have a whole spiel about that, which I won't go into right now. <laughs> okay, so if we want to talk about failure, I think this is actually, a, I think this is a misnomer. So the, uh, the fail, fail, fail thing that people keep going off on. So I don't know if I'm becoming a difficult guest because of this now. Oh, but, um, <laughs> love it. But I don't, um, so the idea of fail is not really, uh, like, I, I was in the fail camp before. I was like, yeah, you got to try it. And if it doesn't work, so be it. Because like in you know playtesting, you test something, your users hate it. You're like, oh, no, I, my users hate it. They hate me. This is all horrible, blah, blah, blah. And you have to be like, no, grow up. <laughs> like You did a thing. They didn't like that puzzle. Now, what did you learn from that puzzle? So I was at a talk, I think, in um, Cambridge, actually. And the person there said, yeah, we have to stop using fail because fail is very scary language to large companies. Mm. And every time we say fail, then people have av adverse reactions in their gut from when they were eight years old and they got picked last for the football team. And they have adverse reactions in their gut from when, um, you know, Tommy beat them in the math competition. Um, or, you know, and so fail is, has, makes a visceral reaction. Okay. However, if you use the word learn, so we have to learn faster, not we have to fail faster, but we have to learn faster. Then people, you know, they may have differing things about learning because they may also, you know, have very unfortunate experience with learning, but a lot of people had relatively positive experience with learning because they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I remember when I first started trying to speak Spanish and it did not go well. And then I got to the point where I could read books and I could watch movies in Spanish. And like, I really felt so much cooler when I was like, I just watched that whole movie in Spanish and I didn't have to turn subtitles on and I could tell you what actually happened in it. Like, <laughs> that was a real sense of accomplishment. So if you can kind of translate that and say, look, it's the same thing in business. It's like, you just have to learn and you have to learn faster. And yeah. there was a very funny um, talk that was given a few years ago at the Mind the Product conference. I wish I remembered the lady's name. I think it was Janet Frazier, but I'm not sure. And she said, um, I have good news and I have bad news. Uh, the bad news is today is the least amount of change you're going to face for the rest of your life. She's like, but the good news is that you get one fifty-six billionth of a second um, added to every day to help you deal with more change <laughs> because the rotation of the earth is like slowing slightly and so therefore the days are going to be slightly longer. So you get one fifty-six billionth of a second to like help you deal with the additional change. So you have more time to deal with all the changes that's going to be happening to you. Um, 
So that's the thing is I think it's really much more about learning because certainly that's the thing that's important is it's that idea of like testing failing. And I think what you were trying to say is this idea of they shouldn't bet the farm on doing this. In the startup company world, you are betting the farm. Mm. You're betting the farm that this is going to work or not because your success has to be bet the farm success. If it's not bet the farm success, it's not the kind of success that investors want. Mm. Um, and so this is also a reason when even if you're just not growing enough, you can be a bad investment for an investor because they need the 10x, right? They invest in 20 companies, 19, you know, it's like whatever. One will succeed and do your 10x or 100x. Um, you know, two or three will zombie and the rest will die. Um, and they may be active in killing some of those companies because they're like, we don't want to tie up any more of our time and effort. We need to actually spend more time on the things that are actually growing like a rocket. Mm -hmm. And so this is something that has to be kind of understood is that if you're going to take investments, then you are in a very different trajectory than somebody who says, okay, we're going to organically grow our company. So like Six to Start was an organic company. We took um, a very little uh, chunk of money from a government organization at the beginning, and the rest of it was organic growth. Um, whereas with Sonic Play, we went out and we did investors, and it was a very, you know, we probably could have survived um, if we had decided, okay, we're going to flip back and we're going to grow organically now. But the investors wouldn't have it. They were like, no, you have to meet these targets, and since you're not, we're, you know, we're forcing you basically into suicide. <laughs> like, you have to, like, this is no longer a company because you're not meeting the growth targets that we need. Yeah. And I understand, like, now I work with more, now I've kind of been on both sides, kind of working with the investors on this and working with the startups on this, so I, I understand better, and I'm trying to help more entrepreneurs understand that, like, hey, if you're going to go after investment, you're going to build a very different business. And so understand what the expectations are of you and also understand, like, what they're going to give you for this money because it's not, um, you know, you don't have a say in running your company in the same way as you did before you took this money. Yeah. Um, and so you may be pushed into different directions because – Again, they look at the risk at a portfolio level. They don't look at the risk at an individual company level. They'll push you to actually do more risky things because it's the smart thing for them to do in 20 sets of risks they're taking. They need each one of these things to be as risky as possible because that's the biggest payoff as possible. Yeah, and they don't care about your product in the same way you do. They care about the, whether the, exit. the exit and whether or not it's going to be a success. Yeah, so it's, it's a, you're automatically on a different... Uh, a different scale with them at that point. Yeah, it's mm. interesting. It's very interesting, and, and I think you're right actually. So I'm, you're not difficult guest at all. I think you're absolutely right. And that's probably what I and I should probably change the chapter actually because I've said <laughs> fail. And I think you mean. I think you're right. Learn. I'll, I mean, I'll attribute you, your your your. Actually, it's that. not me. Say something yeah. about Agile Cambridge. That was the conference where it came from, and I wish I could remember who ah, said it. Ah, whatever. Learn no, faster. It's, it's Lisa. It's Lisa. <laughs> uh, it's okay. You'll get all credit, <laughs> and, then, and then I'll get someone coming after me for it. Uh, there you later. go. <laughs> Final thing I wanted to ask you about, which was. And I don't, I, maybe it's not something that you feel is really relevant, but I'm interested by it. You mentioned all these guys, you mentioned white, white male, blah, 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 certain, certain um, background and things. You're a woman in tech. Mm -hmm. That is not common, I don't think. I mean, there are more now, but it's still predominantly a male-driven world. Mm -hmm. I think I'm right. On that. <laughs> yes, that so fair? far as I can tell, the stats are still uh, in the favor of more men than women in tech. Right. So, mm -hmm. so how, like, I guess I just want to ask you generally about that. What's your experience there? Is there a way in which we can get more women into tech? Why aren't women picking tech as a, as a career? Is it because men are dominating and it's a weird vibe <laughs> to go into? What's your sort of 
experience of coming into tech as a woman, is there any things which you felt are relevant that might be useful advice for women looking to get into tech? Or, I mean, I, I definitely don't want you to sit here and have to be an ambassador because <laughs> that wasn't why I invited you onto the <coughs> podcast. But, it, but obviously, you're, no, but your experience and, and you've just won that, that, that um, accolade as one of the 50 top 50 women in tech in, in Norway, which is amazing. Congratulations, by the way. That's amazing. Um, but I, I think it's, it's, it's just interesting to me that still mm -hmm. it seems to be that, you know, there's not a real shift in the, the statistics. And, and I, I feel like there's been, a, especially here in Norway, for example, and I don't know what the, the stats are in Norway. They're, they're very different. But it feels like there's been a concerted effort to try to get more girls into STEM, more girls into kind of engineering and, and maths and and, and, and um obviously by association in coding and engineering uh, development and stuff. And it's probably working to some extent, but it doesn't seem to be really changing things. I don't, uh, I mean, that's my impression. Is that right? Or is it, are you hopeful? Uh, like, yeah, I'm just going to throw you that word salad and just lob it <laughs> over to you. <laughs> that's right, the worst, so. pod, worst <laughs> podcast uh, host ever. I'm just going to throw a word salad at you and expect you to respond. So Go. women in tech, what do you think? Yeah, Go. yeah, well, no, I mean, it must um, have come up for you. It must be something you talk, get asked about, I guess. So I'm going to tell the same story to lots of people about um, when I first came to Norway. So I've worked in tech for a bazillion years. Like you said, it's mostly guys. So I'll be in a room and it's me and it's 20 guys. And that's normal. And that, um, you know, that's the world I live in. And occasionally I run across other women who are like, oh, my God, it's like the Spider-Man comic, you. <laughs> um, so, and of course, we must be exactly so, the same. <laughs> I mean, as far as the guys are concerned, yeah. <laughs> so, no, but it's, um, yeah. So anyway, let me let me tell the story of like coming to Norway. So I've been in tech for a bazillion years. I've worked in different countries and I've worked in different groups and um, different sizes of companies. Um, and here I came to Norway in 2015 and I was going to be the product manager for a peer in. And one of the first things I had to do was sit down with all the engineers, be like, hi, explain to me like what you're working on, um, what it looks like, what technology you're using, like how does this go? And I was learning a new technology, which is called WebRTC. Um, and I was shocked by these meetings I was having with the engineers because I was like, man, this is like these at like these these Norwegians, like, man, they're just like right to the point. They like just get on with it. It's crazy. Like they're super focused. Because what was happening is that I said, Hi, like I'm Lisa, I'm a new product manager, so explain to me what you're working on, what your problems are, what do you think you've done, etc. And the guys would turn around to the whiteboard start explaining they'd be like okay i'm working on this and i'm working on okay do you understand how this web rc technology works okay you don't understand the packet stuff okay so it works like this are you familiar with this system da, da, da. and they would just explain to me what was actually happening so about two months later i'm i went back to london and i was having um lunch with my friend harpreet um and i was telling harpreet like about these crazy norwegian engineers which were like nothing i had ever experienced before because like they're like so focused and so on task and like we would just you know i'd ask them a question they just answer it and like it was amazing and she said, you know, Lisa, I hate to bust your bubble, but um, do you think actually that that is actually how it's supposed to work? Hmm. And the way you've actually had your experience up to this point is how it's not supposed to work. And I was like, what? <laughs> so she and I both had, <laughs> exactly. So it was a very, like, uh, unfortunate moment in some ways where I was like, oh, my God, how much time have I wasted? But, like, it, like. Yeah. Anyway, so I was like, I, I can't be that. It can't be 
Like, I'm not that stupid, right? Yes, I am. Um, spoiler alert, I'm really that stupid. Really stupid. Um, and I'm, I'm very amused because I'm sure in 10 years' time I'm going to look back on this and I'll be like, oh, I was so stupid. And Because I think this is what you learn is every decade or so you look back on your life and you're like, wow, I was really stupid. Oh, I'm really uh, stupid. Yeah, so yeah, I'm yeah. looking forward to how much smarter I'm totally going to be in the future because I think I'm, I've learned so much and there's still so much more for me to learn. So in order to test this theory of, oh, the engineer is just answering your questions, I went to my nice white male friend who is also a coder and I said, hey, Tell me, um, when you go and ask engineers to these basic questions, when you get started, like, how does this conversation go? And he said, well, I ask the questions and they answer them. And I was like, so they don't ask you questions about your background or the systems you've worked on or any of this? He's like, sometimes it comes up, like, in the course of the conversation. He's like, but no, they just answer my questions. Mm. So that was my aha moment. And I was like, wow, I've been experiencing like gender discrimination for like 20 years and I was too stupid to figure it out. Yeah, it's so interesting. This is the thing is that because I never like if you're the only woman and basically every time you deal with another engineer and the engineer says to you like, well, tell me what your background is and what systems have you worked on? And you end up in a mini interview, even with people who interviewed me for the job to do it mm. would do this to me. Um, and so it's this kind of small thing. And so looking back on it, I'm like, no wonder so many, I was like, I'm too stupid to have gotten annoyed because I was like, well, this is just like the last company I was at where they asked me this. And so, okay, I'll answer your questions. But of course, all the other smart women were like, this sucks. These people don't trust me. They don't think I'm actually competent. Therefore, I'm out. Because what you're actually seeing now is they've actually fixed a lot of the pipeline. Like, you know, 50% of MIT is, fe is female That's, and 50% are male. I didn't know that. That's yeah. awesome. Um, but then what happens is they go out into the industry for five to seven years, and then suddenly they out. Yeah. They're not doing it anymore. And so what's happening is that essentially people are getting discouraged. Um, and I could say, like, even from, you know, it's there's a lot of discouragement along the way um, because it's like, well, you're not supposed to do that, right? Mm. So one of the things I think that's good about Norway um, is the fact that, like, people, like, men and women parent here. So I remember being in a meeting at Telenor, and it was, like, at 2.30, and, again, a bunch of guys <laughs> the guys were like hey uh so we're starting this meeting at 2 30 but who has to pick up their kids from barnahaga and again that was like a flooring experience for me because i was like wow these guys actually know they have kids they actually <laughs> are are doing like they're concerned about their work schedule so that they can actually go and pick up their children from like school mm. like in all my years in england and france and you know the united states whatever i'd never been in a meeting where like children were raised as much more than like, oh yeah, my wife just had her second kid this morning, but you know, it's okay, I'm still on the call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. No, it is, a, it is yeah. a great country for that. And I think it's interesting, I, d I don't, I sort of inferred from what you're saying that the reason those Norwegian engineers might've talked to you in that way was because culturally they're just, they're looking at you as a as a normal person, not a gender, <laughs> and and so they're they're talk. I'm guessing. I mean, because that is certainly my experience here. Is you know, it, it is a very much equal society in that way, and and people tend to. Uh, obviously, there's exceptions in what I'm saying here, but they tend to be much less gender oriented in the in the way that they or sex oriented well. in the way that they approach. They're like still treating one another. Yeah, I would say like there are still expectations. There are still like, you know, no place is perfect. It's just that no. Norway was so much different than where I'd been previously mm. that it was a step change. Um, and the other thing I would say is that there is 
like even if you have this, even if you have a more supportive environment for people to do this, in order for people to stay in this industry, remember a lot of like if you're going to be really successful in technology in Norway, where are you going to go? Microsoft, mm. Google, mm -hmm. who runs that? A bunch of Americans. <laughs> mm. And so what's the American culture doing for this? Um, so when it comes, like you kind of run up against these things, which I mean, I, I think it's just the nature of any company is that whoever, wherever your headquarters is, that tends to be what your management is like. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a friend of mine who is of, um, so he's Norwegian, but his family is from Pakistan. And so he moved here um, and grew up in Norway and was very, frustrated growing up in Norway and he's I mean he's I think he's born I think he was born here but um anyhow he's his parents are from Pakistan um he moved here grew up in Norway and then he moved to the United States um worked there for a while uh moved to France lived there for a while and as his kids were growing up um he realized he like he loves France he's like this is the best place ever he's like I love living in Europe this is so fantastic um and he but was looking around in kind of French culture, and he was like, yeah, but the problem is, is that here, I can't, in France, point to any kind of business leaders or people who look like my kids and are in charge of things. He's like, but if I go to the United States, I can point to the CEO of PepsiCo. I can mm. point to the CEO of Microsoft. I can point to the CEO of Google and show that there are people who look like my kids who have made it. Mm. And so he moved to the United States, ironically enough, um, from France, because he's like, I need to move to a place where my kids can see that they can actually have a future and be at the top of their game and the top of the, uh, you know, the top mm. of the food chain. Mm. Um, and if we stayed in France, he's like, they would not have that um, understanding. So, yeah, I kind of give that as the parting tale. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's, yeah. it's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's there's so many different challenges that you've you've kind of. Um, touched upon and I think your thing about luck a lot of what you've talked about is, uh, is linked to luck whether it's about your own luck but also about the way that startup founders you know if they've got some some rich family or yeah. some some people who they know with cash to burn then that is an extremely lucky situation to be in I mean I, I started my own company and I tried to do it um, without any investment and it was a very naive thing for me it was part of the reason I decided to go to business school because <laughs> I wanted to learn what I'd done wrong, mm -hmm. basically everything, but uh, but especially related to finance because I was like, I was clueless and, and I pretty much still am, if I'm completely honest, but we're right at the end of the podcast, so only the, <laughs> only the true hardcore is still worse <laughs> to hear that little brutal honesty from me. No, but I started that company and I, I realized in hindsight, I'm like, you know, the, getting investors, getting people bought in, there's like, there were people around that I could have asked. I just, my family wasn't wealthy at that mm -hmm. time, so they weren't the ones I could ask. And I felt terrible. I would have felt terrible asking anyone else. But if, you know, the thing is, if you have an idea, you believe in it, and you, you believe you can sell it, there are lots of people wanting to invest, especially if it's got the extra cash, they want to invest it to get some return on their investment. You know, they, they will be willing to take risks with the extra cash if they believe in your ability to deliver, uh, you know, something of, of value in return. But then remember why the first round is called friends, family, and fools. fools. Yeah, yeah, friends, family, and fools. Yeah, I like <laughs> because that. Because any sort of really that. early stage company is very much putting your money in a suitcase and setting it on fire. Yeah. And that is happening with most of the money that's in Silicon Valley is people setting their suitcases on fire with this cash in it. But what it does is it creates this area with all these people who have all this information and know how to do this stuff that then goes and benefits other companies. I mean, the people, like the touch screen stuff you have on the, um, 
iPhone and the iPad and all that kind of stuff, that company went bankrupt and Apple bought the parts. Oh, That's wow. where that technology comes from for that touch screen, for that really good um, interface. So it so wasn't Apple that came up with it. It was this company that they were able to actually go and buy the spare parts from. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah well, uh, <laughs> one more reason to be cynical about Apple. <laughs> well, but be cynical about all of these companies because the idea is that, you know, again, this idea of like, oh, that's super innovative tech. Like, look, honestly, the bleeding edge stuff, it doesn't work. Mm. It's like a nightmare. It's, you know, really scary. Like Moderna, the, the vaccine stuff. If you look at them, they've been working on this mRNA platform for a long time and nobody really believed that this was actually going to work. Mm. So when they finally actually proved this coronavirus thing, this is a game changer for them. That guy went from like whatever, his $8 billion company to like an $800 billion company mm. um, because they were finally able to prove that one thing where this te technology really worked and there's so much of technology which is like yeah there's a reason why ibm has just a lab of people testing out random things and new technology and trying to actually make this stuff work because at some point a product manager is going to come in and, and like literally ibm actually has uh, or had uh, this building in basingstoke and it was the most amazing mi6 looking building in, in the ever. uk <laughs> in the basingstoke uk sorry basingstoke in the uk, in the UK. <laughs> And um, this, it was like an old manor they had converted. And the basement of this place was like, it had all the lasers and like all this kind of crazy tech in there. Um, and essentially those, the people who are the boffins, which is like scientist-y term, <laughs> um, they just try out new technology things, try like they'd play with Second Life, they'd play with like different virtual world things, whatever. And they're just testing different things out to see like how things worked, how they work together, um, how they could actually take real world information and use it in some sort of simulation to like change the weather in Second Life based on what the weather was in Basingstoke that day. Like all kinds oh, yeah, of weird yeah, integrations yeah. and things. Um, and what would happen is that the people who are like in business development in IBM upstairs would like run into a problem that they found at a customer site or whatever. And they'd come downstairs to the basement and be like, so we're gonna explain this problem to you is there anything that you actually have in your bag of magic tricks that would actually work on this kind of thing? And so then that would become a consulting project for IBM. And they would take this one technology that kind of this guy had been poking with a stick and this other woman had been like, you know, hooking up to some other generator. And they were like, yeah, okay, let's take this thing with like some chicken wire and duct tape and we're gonna give it to this customer as this consulting project. And then if it works, hmm, this might actually be the basis for something to, for us to patent and use. And then suddenly that becomes the basis of somebody else. Maybe Google or Apple will actually pay for that patent um, to then use it and license that technology to actually you know, or Huawei or somebody would actually build all this stuff out. Ideas. It's, it's a, a, the future of ideas. I just uh, I just listened to that book um, by Max Tegmark. Is mm. it Life 3.0 or something? It's quite an <laughs> okay. old book now. I, like, yeah. I've just got around to listening to it. It's like five years old or something. Mm -hmm. it, of course, with, the, with the, all the concepts about what's going to happen in the future and we're five years in the future, so a lot of things have come true now. But uh, yeah, they talk about it. They talk about the sort of currency of ideas and, and what's what's going to mm. be the things that still are worth pursuing in, in the future. Lisa, I'm going to wrap up there. Thank you so, so much for coming and joining me. I think it's been a great conversation. And I, I want to say hi to anyone that knows me and Lisa, any INSEAD friends and things who've, who've kept with us all the way. Anyone else who's <laughs> kept with us all the way, thank you so much. I always appreciate the... Uh, the, the people who, who stick with it and listen through. Um, like, subscribe, do all that jazz, uh, review, but also uh, feel free to get in touch. I'm going to leave, throw over to Lisa to sort of say the last parting words, any advice, anything you want to promote, anything you want to kind of cheerlead, um, or you just want to say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you.
thank you very much, Nick, for having me on your podcast. Uh, hello to all the insiders out there. And I would say, if you have a chance to give somebody who is not like your background um, and open a door for them, or uh, you know, be it an internship or you know, a grant or you know, funding, anything like that. Um, take the chance because they need help to get that education, to get those opportunities. And a lot of people who are probably going to be listening to this podcast are the people who can open those doors. So I would say take the risk, open the door, because you have no idea what wonderful things can happen and how much better your life will be because the door has been opened to someone who can help solve your problem. Awesome. Lisa Long, thank you so much. Okay, thanks for listening. For those still here, uh, if you're still here, please do review it. Uh, it would be really useful to me. Um, I, I, I haven't really pushed too hard with these podcasts. Uh, it's been a personal project so far, but I figure why not ask? Um, yeah, if, you, if you've got a chance to review or rate on, uh, on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using, that would be super useful. Thank you so much, and I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>